Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness or find links to all our socials at zerobrightness.com. Let's start this with a round of applause for Shinji Mikami, not only notable for codifying survival horror with Resident Evil, but he kept that shit moving. He basically perfected it with Resident Evil 2, and with Resident Evil 4, he revolutionized not just horror games or survival horror games, but just video games in general. Resident Evil 4 stands as one of the most influential video games of all time. It introduced a totally new and different way of controlling a character and a camera and just moving through a game world. There's a reason that every action game for the next 10 years basically just did what Resident Evil 4 did. It worked really, really well. And it managed to totally change the way we look at action games and video games. In terms of horror, it also showed that you could make a great horror game by not sticking so tightly to the blueprint. And it also led to tons of ideas from horror games like the atmosphere and aesthetics being adopted by normal action video games. Resident Evil 4 wasn't just a great game, it was a net good for video games. It made video games better and more interesting. After that, Mikami basically went into the woods with a few games that stood as pretty big stylistic diversions. There's of course God Hand, the totally wacky PS2 action game, Vanquish, a kinetic 3D action game that took a ton of influence from 2D shoot-em-ups and bullet hell games, as well as Shadows of the Damned, a game that I'm not even sure where to start with. I guess it's like Resident Evil 4 on a bunch of different designer drugs. Yeah, let's say that. After that, Mikami decided to follow his own path, officially splitting with Capcom and any Capcom-affiliated studios to start his own company, Tango Gameworks. And this is where we get into the third act of Mikami's career, and the one that we're still in to this day. This era basically begins with the release of Evil Within, and I think Evil Within signaled a lot of his intentions for the future. Mikami wasn't trying to shake things up or revolutionize video games anymore. He was trying to take the things he had already done and refine them. This era is all about refinement. It's about making things better and working roughly within an established style. It's interesting to note though that this has probably been the most contentious and divisive era of his career. The Evil Within games are massively, massively divisive. I mean, if you ask 10 different people what they think of the game, you might get 10 different answers. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that I love The Evil Within, and I love The Evil Within 2 even more. I think they're basically perfect games, even though the first game is really, really hard to get into and heroically player unfriendly. Like, it's absolutely crazy. What's so amazing about The Evil Within though is that it doesn't just refine the formula that Mikami introduced way back in the 90s, it absolutely perfects it. It takes a lot of the game design and level design ideas from something like Resident Evil, mashes them up with the general playstyle and refinements of Resident Evil 4, and just bakes them to perfection. 
Of course, these games aren't just about refinement. Each one adds a new idea into the mix, and The Evil Within itself actually added a ton of new ideas when compared to Resident Evil 4. Modern conveniences like stealth, stealth kills, crafting, etc. just enriched the experience. It made it super fun, and it never took away from, once again, that core gameplay loop or the parts of it that made it great horror. Within this micro-genre of game, there is a tendency from some gamers to say that it's not horror, but to me, it clearly is. It not only has all the aesthetic hallmarks and the atmosphere of a horror game, but if you're playing it the right way, and I know that's a hugely loaded thing, but just go with me here, if you're playing it the right way, you spend a lot of time skulking in the shadows. It's really, really tense. It's really, really intense, and at times, it can be fucking scary. Evil Within 2 expanded upon this greatly by adding in an open world element. You could now freely roam around certain very large areas of the game, and here is where the game hit upon something that I think is absolutely genius. With a much larger environment, you could actually hide things in it and let the player stumble upon these great little moments of discovery or terror. Now, I've talked a lot about this in past episodes, but the relationship between horror and open world is kind of tense. There's a push and pull there. A lot of times when you go the open world route, the horror kind of falls away or ends up being less prominent. But Evil Within 2, as well as certain other games like Death Stranding, prove that you can actually make a great horror experience that uses the open world to enhance that. The Evil Within 2 does that to such a great degree. There's so many weird, creepy little things for the player to find as they're going around. And it was even set up so that the more you explored and the more time you spent going off the beaten path, the more weird, creepy horror stuff you were going to find in that game. It's to the point that I think one of the best, if not the best moment of pure horror in that game is one that a lot of players could miss if they were just running through the story and beelining for the end of the game. And of course, I'm talking about the very, very uh, Ringu-influenced yokai lady who stalks you around a really gross old doctor's office. I'm talking about that. And yes, it is as cool as it sounds, if not even better. Now, I've played a lot of The Evil Within and Evil Within 2 over the last few years. I've beaten both games at least twice if not three times and they're pretty long games if you play them like I play them which is obsessively looking for everything and what I've gleaned from that experience is that I think there is a type of game that I would call a Mikami game initially I would have said that the characteristics that make something feel like a Shinji Mikami game were those kind of big hallmark things that were pulled from Resident Evil 4 The -the over-the-shoulder perspective, the kind of quasi-realistic meets quasi-anime visual design, things like weapon upgrades and skill trees, stuff like that. But now I see that I think there's something deeper to it. To me now, a Mikami game is a game that, yes, it has all of or almost all of those hallmarks, But it's also a game that exists loosely within the survival horror genre that also has a really satisfying, fun, and visceral 
action system paired with the ability to explore a quasi-open environment and find secrets for yourself. The combination of those systems being a game that has a super fun and addicting yet small loop. That is to say it's a game where you might want to go to a save point, go out and explore and do some tasks, come back to the save point, and just keep repeating that. As you do that, you level up your character, you find more interesting things in the world, and after doing enough of that, you advance the game's plot forward. It's a lot like something like Castlevania, which I've also talked a lot about on the show, right? Something where that moment-to-moment loop and those moment-to-moment gameplay beats are super important. They're almost, if not completely, more important than the game's main plot. So if that's what you would also consider to be a Mikami game or a good Mikami game, then let me tell you this. His latest, Ghostwire Tokyo, is fucking fantastic. It's maybe his best game yet. It is so, so, so good. And weirdly, it's getting a really, really muted response. We're not seeing the effusive praise for it. We're not seeing much hype for it. Like we've seen even with divisive works like the Evil Within games. It seems like this one is flying a little bit under the radar and it's really, really bumming me out. I think one reason could be that there are a few big shifts stylistically in this game. First, and probably most notably, it's in first person. Now, this isn't exactly new territory for Mikami. The original Resident Evil was supposed to be a first-person game, and The Evil Within, um, I believe both games eventually got patches that let you mess around with a first-person mode. It's something that's like within the stylistic milieu of Mikami, but in Ghostwire, they commit to it fully, so it's a first-person game. The other big change is that Aesthetically and tonally, it seems to be less of the traditional European horror aesthetic or 1800s horror aesthetic that Mikami likes to use, and it's more of a modern Japanese style. That means a lot more bright colors, that means more neon lit streets, and in the way that the dialogue is written, it means that things are a little faster, snappier quippier, maybe something we'd see in like an anime, for example. These don't seem like huge stylistic diversions, but to people who are fans of his work and to people who are quote unquote hardcore horror fans, these are the sorts of things that turn them off. It didn't help that a lot of early reviews and impressions flat out said, hey, this game isn't horror. And I think a lot of horror fans took note. But let me say this. All of that could not be more wrong. Ghostwire Tokyo isn't just a great game. Ghostwire Tokyo isn't just a great horror game. It's great J-horror. And that's the thing that struck me immediately and made me want to record this episode as quickly as I could because I needed to share this thought with you guys. But yeah, Ghostwire Tokyo is great J-horror and I'm going to fucking tell you why. One thing that struck me really early on about Ghostwire Tokyo is that it has something in common with Elden Ring. And please don't turn off the episode. This isn't going to be an episode about FromSoft games. But I noticed that both are empathetic stories about a ruined world. 
This is a concept that recurs a lot within Japanese media, and I do want to delve into this and talk about this a little bit. Let me give you a quick disclaimer. I'm not an expert about any of this. I'm not Japanese. Just assume I don't know what I'm talking about. I've just like watched a lot of Japanese horror movies and read some really, really weird books. Anyway, let me just give you my take on this. I noticed something from watching all those movies and reading all those weird books that there is kind of a trope that recurs within Japanese media. Specifically, it's a setting. And I noticed that a lot of like really dark movies or anime or manga, etc., are set within ruined worlds. You might call them post apocalyptic or you just might call them dark and horrible, but either way, they've been ruined by some calamity. And yet, the story itself is empathetic. It's not pure brutalism. It's not just like pure monstrous horror. There are characters that we're supposed to empathize with and care about. We're supposed to see that it is a world that people live in and care about and want to survive in. I do think this does have some ties to Japanese history. Specifically, you know, in World War II, the country of Japan was basically decimated. A lot of it was burned to the ground, and later, of course, there was an atomic bomb dropped, or there were two atomic bombs dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was a huge cultural reset for Japan. The country had basically been decimated, and it needed to have its infrastructure and economy completely rebuilt from the ground up. It was also sort of a culture shock because Japan had had a very long history and a very rich culture that had led it to a place of extreme pride and nationalism. I mean, the reason it happened was because Japan had become a fascist nation and allied itself with the worst fascists in the world. And they, of course, caught the heat for it. In the years following World War II, the West committed a lot of resources to helping rebuild Japan and the rate at which they were able to not only rebuild but become an economic and technological powerhouse was astonishing. However, I feel that within media, you can see that there still was some trauma from the post-World War II period where the whole country basically fell apart and people had to figure out a way to rebuild their lives moment to moment. They couldn't just sit around and wait for the government to step in because things were just that bad. I first started to notice Japanese media portraying this culture of despair and desperation in a ruined world when I saw specific pieces of media that portrayed the plight of sex workers in that post-World War II period. There are a couple of pieces that really stood out to me, one being the film Gate of Flesh, which is about like a group of sex workers at that time. And another is a story called Goodbye by the Gekiga manga artist Yoshihiro Tatsumi. Let's talk about Goodbye for a second because it's like a super interesting story. So Yoshihiro Tatsumi is probably my favorite comics artist of all time. Absolutely incredible manga artist. And he helped to pioneer this style called Gekiga. The best way I can describe Gekiga is that they're super dark, gritty stories that 
pair extreme social realism with a very simple, almost juvenile and cartoony visual style. Like there's a lot of great art, but it's like intentionally rough. It looks kind of weird and ugly at moments. I think maybe a somewhat more popular artist that would give you an idea of what that might look like is Kazuo Umezu, who famously wrote the Drifting Classroom manga. A lot of Tatsumi's work focused on poor, destitute, and desperate people and the horrible things that they would experience in their lives. A lot of it does have this really brutally hopeless feel to it, but I also feel like empathy is just a super, super important part of his work. The story Goodbye, for example, which once again is really, really reminiscent of that movie Gate of Flesh, um, both portray a world in which there is no infrastructure and there is no hope. And people, in these cases specifically sex workers, are trying to offer whatever they have to American GIs so they can get some small amount of money, safety, and comfort. These stories really portray a world that was in flux and that offered no safety or stability to the people who live in it. It's a specific feeling that we'd see echoes of in the 80s and 90s when Japan started experiencing economic crashes and mental health crises. It's really hard for me not to see this as a generational trauma that different forms of media return to in their depictions of a ruined world. Portrayals of ruined worlds in Japanese media span generations. One of the earliest ones being Phoenix by Osamu Tezuka. In the 80s, we got things like Berserk. In the 90s, we got all those grimdark teen animes that I've talked about before, but specifically, I guess I'm thinking of something like Here and There, Now and Then. And more recently, we got things like Dark Souls that once again portray a ruined world that is full of interesting and empathetic characters. Even as it's a monstrous place, we care and we want to know more. It's such a unique style and feel, and I can't help but draw that through line between all those types of media. Now, the eagle-eyed among you, eagle-eared? That seems weird. The astute listener will have noticed that I skipped the 2000s, and that's because I think the 2000s contain the most nuanced, the most interesting, the flat-out best portrayal of this kind of setting. And that was via the genre of J-horror. Yes, we're talking again about J-horror. So, what was J-horror? This is a question I think we need to answer because to a lot of people, it's just a collection of stylistic tropes or it's just horror from Japan. And I don't really think either of those things are true. Horror exists in all cultures. If you look at old religious texts, they're pretty much all very, very scary horror tales. But horror usually gets put into the spotlight when a modern revitalization of it occurs. You can look at the Italian giallo movement. You can look at the hammer horror of the 60s and 70s. These things were new and interesting takes on horror that also contained a lot of unique cultural signifiers. 
And they pretty much all constituted some kind of mini economic boom surrounding that genre. J-horror was a boom centering around Japanese horror films that were released mostly in the 2000s. The big idea behind J-horror, the central thing that really made it unique to me, was that it took classic ghost story tropes and twisted them into something modern. I think when looking at modern horror stories or things that feel distinctly modern within the horror genre, they feel really different from J-horror. I think something that we would call distinctly modern would probably ignore any trope from an old ghost tale. But J-horror did nothing of the sort. If anything, J-horror plundered old Japanese ghost stories for visuals, ideas, and story beats and then did something new and different with them. Hideo Nakata's Ringu, based on Koji Suzuki's book of the same name, established a lot of the parameters. It's a classic ghost story that shakes things up by tying it to modern tech and psychic trauma. The villain, I guess, of Ringu, the big scary ghost, is such a classic Japanese ghost that anyone who had even a passing familiarity with older forms of Japanese visual art like woodblock printing would have sensed something kind of familiar about the look of the ghost in that film. Even the tale itself follows a lot of classic story beats from a traditional ghost story. However, it's all tied to relatively modern tech. In that movie, it's a cursed videotape. And even the creation of the tape or the inception of it is tied to a series of events that explore distinctly modern themes. Sadako was a very troubled person who experienced a lot of disturbing things while people were trying to diagnose and help her because she was clearly someone suffering from mental distress. To not dig too deep into this because it is kind of a problematic story that has a bunch of things I could pick apart, let's just say that these are all very modern ideas, especially when we compare them to something like a Victorian ghost tale. And I mention Victorian ghost tales because even in the modern day, a lot of stories still go back to the tropes introduced in Victorian ghost tales. All they change are the aesthetics or maybe the setting, but they're still just classic ghost stories. J-horror, and specifically Ringu, was interesting because it made substantive changes rather than stylistic ones. Suddenly the themes of the story were completely different. The things that we were focusing on, talking about, and thinking about were completely different from a classic ghost tale. In my opinion, the peak of J-horror, the peak of this type of movie and storytelling is Cairo, often westernized as Pulse. Cairo or Pulse is a film by the incredible director Kiyoshi Kurosawa that uses classic ghost story tropes to interrogate modern questions. Those questions are these. What if the balance between the living and the dead was so out of whack that the dead came back? What if their appearance portended a great calamity? What if their portal to us was the internet? 
Cairo's horror scenes are kind of tropey, and you might have gleaned that from that description, but the dramatic scenes are super unique. And the underlying drama that ties the whole story together is incredibly, incredibly singular. The film posits that us putting our faith into telecommunications corporations to bring us closer together will only drive us apart and send us into a deeper level of despair than we could have ever imagined. And if you think that statement is true, I mean, I do, this movie hits like a Mack truck. It depicts a world that is being ruined by ostracization and people's lack of empathy towards one another. It belongs in that subgenre of apocalyptically depressing movies, the ones that change your perspective on life but are incredibly hard to rewatch. I think it's that apocalyptic aspect that makes me put this film up against all the other media that I've mentioned in this episode so far. And it really does get very, very apocalyptic. It essentially portrays a slow-moving cosmic disaster that could end the entire world. And in its shocking final third, it portrays an almost Junji Ito-esque dead world. It's incredibly disturbing and incredibly moving because, once again, it's following characters that we care about and that we've become deeply invested in. This is what I love about J-Horror. I really didn't think about it for a long time, but a lot of my love of J-Horror comes from its portrayal of things that are actually horrifying. I mean, once you reach a certain age, you're not really scared of like monsters and murderers anymore, and instead you become scared of things like loss and disconnection. And I think that J-Horror depicts it better than any other genre. There's a darkness at the core of something like Cairo that is more scary and disturbing than anything in a traditional ghost story. Something that I couldn't have even imagined as a kid trying to find the scariest horror story ever or whatever. And it's something much deeper than just a simple shocking image. I think that a movie like Cairo shows what's great about J-horror because it's a philosophical take on horror that's not confusing or pretentious. Once again, it is incredibly easy to summarize what happens in Cairo or what the story is about. It's ghosts coming through the internet, but it's a much deeper story that's an allegory for people not finding connection with one another and losing hope. It's about struggling to exist in a hopeless and despairing world. Once again, it's an empathetic story about a ruined world. I think Cairo hits a little bit closer to home because the world has been ruined by capitalism and technology, just like the actual world we live in. But it hits a lot of those same notes as these more fantastical or paranormal stories that I've mentioned thus far in this episode. This really gets at the core of a hugely important element of J-horror, which is drama and sentimentalism. Now, another thing I've noticed after years of watching a ton of Japanese media is that it has a strong tendency towards drama and sentimentalism. So some things to back up that claim. 
You might notice that when you're watching anime or Japanese films, they interrogate their protagonist's inner thoughts and feelings in unexpected ways. Like you might be watching something that is generally considered to be an action story, but you'll get a lot of background on the character's thoughts, feelings, and inner workings. Another thing that pops up unexpectedly quite a bit is a generally wistful vibe. You get sort of a, a sad contemplative vibe from a lot of Japanese media. And once again, it can sometimes pop up in really, really strange places. I would also consider the generally soothing aesthetics and glut of slice of life scenes within Japanese visual media as another piece of evidence to support this claim. Slice of life, if you're not familiar with the term, is something that people use to refer to scenes, mostly in anime, of characters doing normal or mundane things. And it's something that actually crops up in a lot of different types of Japanese media. It's usually used to humanize the characters in the story and also to change the pace of the story. A lot of Japanese visual media like films and TV series tends to move at a slightly slower pace in terms of story development, so there's a lot of negative space in there for things to happen, and most of those things would be interrogating the characters' thoughts and feelings, interrogating the relationships between the characters, things like that. J-horror absolutely follows this trend. Not only are J-horror movies notoriously slow-moving, but a lot of the films really focus on drama and interpersonal relationships. Some films like Blackwater are just straight-up dark dramas that put horror completely to the side. And actually, Blackwater is a movie in both its original and its American remake that got a lot of flack for that because... The original is another film based off of a story by Koji Suzuki, who wrote Ring. I believe it was also directed by Hideo Nakata, who directed Ringu. High expectations for that kind of project, and people were a little bit shocked and weirded out to see that it's pretty much just a drama with horror aesthetics. The English remake, which is actually very, very good, followed suit, and audiences hated it even more because this is America and... I don't have much more of an answer beyond that. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Drama, sentimentalism, interpersonal relationships, these are all super, super important elements of J-horror. And I really think personally that spending 10 years almost exclusively watching J-horror and other East Asian horror movies kind of brain poisoned me into thinking that that is what horror is. That is what horror should be. And honestly, I feel kind of vindicated in recent years, watching movies like The Babadook or The Witch, and more recently, as in Last Night, a film called The Night House, which is really, really great. Once again, another movie that I would consider to be basically just a dark drama, but released as a horror film. I feel vindicated in thinking this way. There's so many things you can do within the horror genre that still focus mostly on the dramatic aspect that aren't pushing, you know, traditional horror tropes, stereotypes, or visuals, and still make something that is great horror. Now, whether or not you agree with everything I'm saying will basically color your perception of and reaction to a lot of different pieces of media, but specifically for the purposes of this episode, Ghostwire Tokyo. So let me break it down for you. Ghostwire Tokyo 
is great J-horror. It hits all of those notes, and it does it so, so well. First and foremost, Ghostwire presents a sentimental and empathetic portrait of a ruined world. The premise is this. A whole district of Tokyo was wiped out in an instant, with all humans reduced to ghostly souls when a weird guy in a Hanya mask basically claps his hands and that's that. He also kidnaps your sister and you've got to go save her and stop him, etc, etc, etc. Your main task in the game, though, is collecting souls. You're collecting all those ghostly remnants of people with the hopes of restoring their lives and humanity by transporting them out of the district. So even though I've played a lot of games where you <clears throat> collect souls, this one is quite different. Not only are you actually trying to save their lives and restore their humanity, you also hear their thoughts and feelings. Even when you go around and just find faceless clumps of souls, you hear dialogue telling you what they were thinking when the calamity happened. And some of them you can actually interact with, talk to, and start doing side quests through. When I first started playing the game, this seemed like a small element, but it just grows and grows the longer you play the game until it became really, really hard to ignore. There is a super strong element of dramatic slice of life in this game. We're meant to care about the people that we're trying to save and we're meant to kind of get to know them. A lot of it is really mundane and charming in that slice of life way. Like you might hear someone complaining about their boss or wondering what they should get for dinner. And yeah, it's just really, really charming. Especially when you consider that it's contrasted against some shockingly dark horror. And let's talk about that. Ghostwire uses J-horror tropes to tell what is essentially a dramatic story. So let's talk about a standard quest in this game and what that looks like. My favorite one that I've encountered so far is this. I met a ghost whose belongings had been stolen by a hoarder. He had actually ganged up with a bunch of other ghosts and they were all trying to get their shit back from this crazy hoarder house. So at their behest, I entered the house and I found myself in a mind-bendingly terrifying hell house. I had to move through it, defeat the ghost, and help the spirit move on, but while doing that, I ended up in the middle of a house with crazy shifting walls and doors whose perspectives were all weird, black holes started opening up, things were jumping out at me, the utter darkness was suffocating. It was crazy. <laughs> Even outside of little capsule quests like this, the world itself is full of startling horror, scary ghosts, and intense situations. One of my favorites was when I first discovered that you can glide in the game. You can basically fly around almost like in Saints Row 4 uh, and I decided to see how far I could go on the map. I eventually found a construction site that looked like it was full of cool shit so I just dropped in on it from above and yeah I ended up landing basically on the head of a super creepy ghost lady who then challenged me to an extremely difficult boss fight. But let me tell you, when I first landed, that was an extremely startling and scary moment. This game is full of great little moments like that, especially if you decide to explore the world to its fullest and do all the side quests that it throws at you. It really rewards that kind of exploration with great little horror scenarios. Of course, the game doesn't throw all this in your face. 
It has a really confident and self-assured vibe. It's not desperate to scare you or show you these cool things it made. It's content to just let you find it on your own time, at your own pace, and in your own way. It's something that a lot of people seem to be loving about Elden Ring. I'm not sure why they don't love it in this game. That sense of confidence also extends to the gameplay, which, in my opinion, is like peak Mikami core, if you will. This game basically has the perfect loop. It's a really nice mix of open and linear flow that, once again, rewards exploration, but also shows you really cool shit throughout the course of following its main questline. In a lot of ways, it does feel like what we would have gotten from The Evil Within 3, which this game in the planning stages started out as before transitioning to a new IP altogether. I think that's one thing that's maybe coloring people's perception of this game, that it's not The Evil Within 3, which is what a lot of fans wanted, but after playing it, I'm happy it's not Evil Within 3. It's something else that's really different. It has a totally different vibe and style in its storytelling and aesthetics, and I think it's great. A big part of the game is the combat, and it is super fast and super fun. Once again, this game is in first person, so it has a really different feel to movement and combat, which is accentuated by the fact that you don't use guns or weapons in this game, you basically use magic that you like shoot out of your hands. Getting the hang of it initially is tough because it has a really unusual and distinct feel to it. The way things wind up, the way that your shots land, things like that. But once you do get the hang of the timing and the feel of it, it's amazing. The combat is super over the top. It's fast and colorful. You and your enemies are both shooting off crazy spells, blocking, dodging, things like that. And it just looks awesome. In a lot of ways, it does feel like the fast and frenetic combat from Evil Within 2, but just pushed way over the top into something that's even faster, more cinematic, fun to watch, and play. It's really, really, really cool. It's also very tense and difficult, which is balanced out by that breezy sense of speed and the simplicity of the controls. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of the Dreamcast game Machin X, which was a first-person sword-fighting game that had kind of a sci-fi fantasy tinge to it. I love that game. This is maybe a deep cut and none of you know what I'm talking about, but I love Machina X. It's such a good game and I played many, many hours of it. What was cool in Machina X wasn't just that it took a genre that was usually in third person and put it in first person, but also that it made the sword fighting combat slow and methodical. It wasn't just that it put you from the perspective of the character, it also made you feel like you were really manipulating the sword. I think this game has a lot of that feel too. Everything has a lot of weight and heft to it. You really feel like you're firing off spells out of your hands rather than just manipulating a weapon in a video game. It definitely takes some getting used to, but once you do get used to it, it feels amazing. Another element of that perfect loop is that the game has a really great progression system. It can be a little confusing at first because just like the Evil Within games, there's a bunch of items to collect and there's a bunch of different things to level up in advance. Your character levels up, there's a skill tree, etc, etc, etc. But similarly, 
once you get the hang of it, it's super, super addictive. It's so fun to just go around, explore, find items, and slowly feel your character getting better. I think one thing that I've noticed with modern games that use skill trees and upgrade items, which is, you know, basically all of them, is that if the core gameplay isn't really fun, those systems can become a slog. But if the gameplay is fun, it's a joy. And I think what really makes Ghostwire Tokyo a joy is that it's super fun to explore its world. It feels good to run around and glide around. It feels good to fight enemies and it feels good to find cool little secrets. You're not bored, you're not just wandering around waiting for something to happen, you're having a lot of fun playing the game. And once again, I think a lot of the horror here props that up. The horror is largely in the setting. It's a creepy game. You're in this formerly bustling district of Tokyo that's now completely empty save for weird ghosts, specters, and disembodied spirits. The game has a really beautiful aesthetic. It's this kind of neon streaked nighttime city feel to it that is completely engrossing. And it really sells you on the prospect of exploring this ruined, decimated world. There's such a cool loneliness and there's such an interestingly wistful vibe to the world of Ghostwire Tokyo. There are certain things done to undercut that, like you have basically a sidekick, which is a spirit that inhabits your body that occasionally talks to you. And yes, you do stop and chat with ghosts and occasionally uh, catch kappas and other cryptids. This game also has a weird dose of like animal cuteness in it that seems to be a very important element in the game. Super cute cats, raccoons, and uh, mythical creatures abound. I love it. I don't know. I don't have much more to say about it than that, but it's absolutely great. It was interesting to play this game, though, and feel all those feelings and see it hit all those same notes like a great J-horror film. I guess that's the factor deciding whether or not you're going to like this game. Can you appreciate something that is mostly subtle, wistful and dramatic in its use of horror and horror tropes and still enjoy it as a great piece of horror media or do you need something more on the nose i'm not judging you if you do but i'm just saying if that's the case you might just say this game isn't horror and it isn't good but i will absolutely fight you on that because i think this game is fantastic it's a great wistful piece of slice of life horror set in a really interesting beautiful ruined world that gives you this strange and weirdly emotional experience while also just being a super fun video game that was one of the fascinating insights from the recent Archipel interview with Shinji Mikami, where he basically said that one of the most liberating things about Resident Evil 4 was them just abandoning all concepts of scary in terms of horror and just focusing on something that was good, a good game, a fun game. And I feel like that liberating idea has been the guiding principle of everything he's done in this current third act of his career. While playing Ghostwire, I absolutely felt that. There's a sense of 
joy in liberating yourself from the constraints of genre and expectations and just making something great. Ghostwire Tokyo is that something great. And yeah, you should play it.